Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead this Friday. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our health lead because any minute we're expecting a group of CDC advisors to decide how and whether, frankly, to move forward with the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine. Right now, some of the leading experts in infectious diseases and public health are debating if the U.S. should resume using the J&J vaccine, perhaps with an added warning for specific groups and individuals, or to continue to stop allowing the administration of the vaccine and to make it permanent. The CDC recommended a pause on the vaccine last week, you'll recall, while it investigated a potential link between the shot and a very serious and very rare kind of blood clot. More than 7 million Americans have received the J&J vaccine, almost all without any severe complications. But there are at least 15 vaccine recipients out of those 7 million who developed the blood clotting condition, and three of them died. Today, Johnson & Johnson executives admitted that a link between its vaccine and blood clots is, quote, plausible. But they argued the shot is valuable because it's easy to distribute and it protects against variants, as CNN's Alexander Field now reports. We need to act swiftly after that analysis. The fate of Johnson & Johnson's single-shot vaccine right now in the hands of a CDC advisory committee expected to issue new guidance soon that will likely put J&J back into arms. I do think that there's um, plenty of people who are interested in the J&J vaccine, if just for convenience, um, as well as for a single-dose option. That guidance may also come with a new warning added to the product about the possible risk of extremely rare blood clots. They will allow it to be given because they feel that the risk of COVID-19 far outweighs the very rare, rare occurrence of this serious adverse event. In the U.S., 10 days after a decision to pause use of J&J, regulators are still considering the evidence in their investigation of 15 cases of rare and severe blood clots among women and three deaths. That's out of more than 7 million people who got the shot in the U.S. But health experts stress a decision to resume use now would come with added safety benefits. I think it is important to point out that this is a treatable condition if you recognize it right away. It's been good to have this pause is to get everybody apprised of that so that all physicians know that this is something to watch out for. Just as the country's third vaccine could return to the market, an even bigger push to once again get more shots in arms. The average daily number now slipping below 3 million, following the mid-April high 3.4 million daily shots. We've gotten vaccinations to the most at risk and those most eager to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. We know reaching other populations will take time and focus. That effort could get a boost soon. Vaccine eligibility now considered likely to expand to children under the age of 16 in a matter of weeks. I'm quite hopeful that uh, even by May uh, that we would have a vaccine available for 12 and above. 
Following a review of data collected from a large study of thousands of pregnant women, the CDC issuing guidance that now goes a step further than it did before. CDC recommends that pregnant people receive the COVID-19 vaccine. And Jake, while we are waiting really at any moment now for a recommendation from that CDC advisory committee, it doesn't mean that you would necessarily see shots going into arms right away. The CDC and the FDA would still have to approve the recommendation made by the committee. That said, there are 9 million doses of Johnson Johnson's vaccine that have been distributed across the country that are theoretically ready to go once the green light is given. A Johnson Johnson official did speak to the committee today defending use of the vaccine, calling it critical not just to the U.S., but to the world because of that ease of distribution, the fact that it is a single-dose shot. Jake? All right, Alex, thanks so much. Let's discuss all of this with CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, what do you think will be the most likely decision from this CDC panel today? Uh, I think, first of all, there will be a decision. I mean, they won't kick the can down the road. I think the decision is most likely that they're going to lift the pause And it will probably, it sounds like everyone's telegraphing that it will be something like what we saw in Europe with the European Medicines Agency, where where the pause will be lifted, but this vaccine will come with warnings, uh, warnings, uh, you know, of this particular condition, but also telling people that if you've had a history of low platelets in the past, uh, bruising, bleeding, or a history of blood clots, uh, you need to talk to, you know, certainly let the uh, physician know about that. But also a message to healthcare providers that if somebody has had this vaccine and develops these sorts of symptoms associated with these clots, that has to be treated a very specific way. That was one of the big lessons, I think, that came out of this pause as well. Blood clots, you typically treat with a blood thinner known as heparin. You wouldn't use that with this particular condition. I think the pause lifted with those caveats, Jake. And you heard uh, a physician, I think it was Francis Collins, I might be mistaken, uh, in that piece saying that if this condition is caught quickly enough... Uh, early enough um, in these very rare cases, uh, it can it can be prevented. H- how do you catch it? Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting. So what what is, seems to be happening here? In, and again, there's not a direct cause and effect that takes a while to establish. But what seems to be happening is that in response to the vaccine, you make these antibodies. The antibodies are to the coronavirus, but the antibodies may ha- also be affecting some of the clotting factors in your blood. So you're actually starting to develop clots in one area of the body and develop bleeding problems in another area of the body. The way that you sort of combat this sometimes, there are certain blood thinners that can work well to help dissolve the clot without worsening bleeding. But sometimes you have to give something known as an immunoglobulin, something to sort of tamp down the antibody response to those specific uh, blood components. So it's, it's, it's a little bit involved, but one of the things that uh, in the European Medicines Agency, they said, if somebody has these problems, you right away want to get a specialist, typically known as a hematologist involved, someone who, who is a specialist in blood disorders to really help guide that treatment. Now, President Biden said that no matter what happens with the J&J vaccine, it will not affect the ability to vaccinate every American adult who wants a shot. Do you have confidence in the supply of the other vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, or could what happens with JJ, J&J be a road bump? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, problem, Jake. I, I, I think that overall numbers-wise, and we can show you the numbers, I mean, there's plenty of vaccine ultimately that would be available. Um, Moderna and Pfizer, we know that uh, by July, there should be plenty of vaccine uh, available to, to vaccinate the country, really, at least all the adults in the country. What you hear from a lot, I was getting a lot of emails from parents of college students, for example, 
uh, who, you know, uh, kind of want the J&J vaccine. They're not sure they're going to be around for the second shot. Uh, there's transient populations in the country. So there's, even though of, if you look at the shots before the pause, J&J was making up about one out of every 17 doses administered. There are certain populations for which this would be really beneficial in the United States. And, you know, around the world, because of the not, the not needing the cold storage, it can get into a lot of areas that these mRNA vaccines have a harder time, you know, addressing. So it's beneficial for sure. We can vaccinate without it, but it does make it a lot easier. Yeah. And again, the risks of COVID are much worse and much greater uh, than the risks of this clotting situation. Um, Sanjay, today the CDC officially recommended that pregnant women get the coronavirus vaccine. This is after a study found no safety concerns uh, in pregnant women who got the vaccine in their third trimester, no safety concerns uh, for their babies. Um, why is this an important change in the language they're using? Well, you, you remember in the original trials, pregnant women were not included. So the data that they've been collecting has been real world data since the vaccine has been authorized. And it was two things that popped out. One is that, you know, you, we just saw evidence of a safety signal, right, with these clots in J&J, um, a, a few in a million sort of scenario. That's how, that's how granular they can get with finding these things. They didn't find safety signal issues with pregnant women specifically. But the other thing they've also noted now, Jake, over the last uh, several months is that pregnant women who develop COVID typically have worse outcomes than women who are not pregnant at the time of the same age who develop COVID. So it's, it's not only do you not have a safety issue here, you have an added benefit of actually protecting people who have more adverse outcomes who are pregnant. When, when you're pregnant, oftentimes you sort of, your immune system can be a little damped down because, tamped down because you're, you're carrying a baby. That can hurt you if you develop an infection. So it's added benefit and seemingly, you know, low risk. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much, my friend. Good to see you. Have a good weekend. We're going to continue to watch for that vote on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Plus, coming up, a growing divide among colleges and universities, the debate over mandating COVID vaccines for college students. Should colleges require it? Then a story breaking right here on the lead. More potential problems for embattled Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. The feds are involved. We'll bring you those details right after this break. In our politics lead now, new details about the federal investigation into embattled Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates. Sources are telling CNN that prosecutors are investigating whether the Florida Republican took gifts, including travel and paid escorts, in exchange for political favors. This is all part of an ongoing probe, also examining whether Gates engaged in a relationship with a girl that began when she was 17 years old. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. Paula, what are federal investigators looking at? Good afternoon, Jake. Sources briefed on the matter say the Justice Department is scrutinizing a 2018 trip to the Bahamas involving Congressman Gates and several young women. They're specifically looking at whether that getaway was part of an orchestrated effort to illegally influence the congressman on the issue of medical marijuana. Now, CNN has previously reported Gates is under investigation for engaging allegedly in a relationship with a woman that, who was just 17 when that relationship began. We've also reported that Gates attended sex parties in Orlando with other prominent Republicans, that those parties involved women, drugs, and sex in exchange for money. Now, CNN has also learned that investigators already have one key witness who is cooperating, and that is Joel Greenberg. 
He's the former Seminole County tax commissioner, and he's a close associate of Gates. He also attended those sex parties. Now, he was indicted last year on multiple federal charges, including sex trafficking, and he's expected to plead guilty in the coming weeks. So you report that a number uh, of uh, Gates' close associates have ties to the medical marijuana industry. Like who? Who are you talking about? So the congressman has a long history of advocating for medical marijuana. He's introduced several pieces of legislation at the state and federal levels seeking to loosen laws regulating the drug. According to reports of one of these people, Dr. Jason Pirazzolo, a Florida doctor who founded a medical marijuana advocacy group, accompanied Gates on that 2018 trip to the Bahamas. Gates has referred to the doctor as one of his best friends, and the pair have repeatedly intersected over medical marijuana. As far back as 2014, Gates, then a state representative in Florida, introduced the medical marijuana legislation just two weeks after vacationing with Pirazzola in the Florida Keys. Just one week after the legislation passed, Pirazzola launched a medical marijuana consulting company. Then in 2018, when Gates introduced the Medical Cannabis Research Act, a source tells CNN the congressman hand-delivered a fully written draft of the bill to his staff, and it overlapped significantly with the agenda the doctor's group had been pushing. Neither Gates nor Pirazzola have been accused by the Justice Department of any wrongdoing or charged with a crime. Pirazzola's lawyer declined to comment, and a spokesman for Gates also declined to comment on the substance of our reporting. But the congressman has previously denied ever paying for sex. Jake. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. As Republicans grapple with how to handle the Gates situation, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also is facing unique challenges wrangling members of her own party, the Democrats. So let's bring in the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, Susan Page, who has a brand new great biography on Pelosi out called Madam Speaker. Susan, congratulations on the book and the great reviews. Um, you describe Speaker Pelosi's relationship with the, the so-called squad, the, these four uh, young, very progressive uh, uh, congresswoman, Democratic congresswoman. You describe the relationship as complicated, especially perhaps with Congresswoman <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, uh, the representative from New York. She came in day one. She joined that sit-in protest in Pelosi's office calling for climate action. But you, you recall in your book, Pelosi identified with AOC and the squad and their passion. She told you, quote, I said to these people, I've been you. I was pushing a stroller and carrying a sign. I've been you. Now, fast forward Three years later, how is their relationship now? Well, it's it's still complicated. It is uh, publicly respectful. It is sometimes fraught in private. And I think we're going to see more strains as the the squad and other most of the most progressive forces in the Democratic Party and in the Democratic uh, House push for bigger and bolder policies. You know, Nancy Pelosi is definitely a liberal uh, she agrees with some of the most liberal policies, but she's also a pragmatist. She's very much uh, uh, focused on what can you actually get done. And I think that's where she's come to loggerheads with the squad and AOC in particular at some points, because she sometimes thinks they are naive, uh, not respectful of the sausage making process and what compromises that can sometimes entail. And I know that a lot of uh, members of the Democratic leadership in the House think that the uh defund the police language uh, hurt House Democrats in their ability uh, to win seats. In fact, they lost seats. Yeah, a big, 
a big surprise in the last election. Nancy Pelosi, up until the time the returns came in, thought they were going to gain seats in the House. They didn't. And some of those mem- uh, members from moderate districts, from swing districts, blame the defund the police rhetoric. That phrase in particular was hurting them uh, with uh, with swing voters. Uh, that is not a phrase you will hear come out of Nancy's Pelosi's mouth. Another one, pack the court. You know, you had Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, introduce legislation to expand the Supreme Court. The next day, Nancy Pelosi said, was she going to bring it up to the House for a vote? No. So Speaker Pelosi and Vice President Harris, they're going to make history next week, uh, sitting uh, behind President Biden when he addresses the joint session of Congress. Uh, We all, of course, remember when Pelosi uh, tore up the written speech from Donald Trump in a similar situation uh, in February 2020. Did you ever get a sense that she regretted that action, that moment? You know, I talked to her at length about that. And she, Nancy Pelosi, not a person for expressing regrets in general, but about that incident in particular, no. You know, she was she was sitting there. She had gotten, the President Trump had given her a text of the speech as is customary. She was scanning through it to see what he was saying. There was something he had written down in the text that she thought was wrong and wanted to mark. She couldn't find a pen. She opened up the little drawer that's up there uh, on the dais. The drawer was empty. So she made a little tear in the corner so she could find her place where this uh, untruth was in her mind. And then she found another and another, and she kept making a series of little tears in the margin. And by the time he was done, she said, "If he, I decided if he was going to shred the truth, I was going to shred his speech. She stood up. She tore it in half four times. Meanwhile, of course, Mike Pence, the vice president, standing next to her, pretending not to notice what it was she was doing. <laughs> Pelosi, um, her red coat uh, symbolizes another moment that her, her fans consider iconic when she uh, uh, left the White House in 2018. She jokes uh, now to you that she can't wear the coat anymore. Uh, she's obviously very aware of optics. Uh, how important is that skill uh, as she you know, has reigned in, in Washington for so long? Yeah, very important. And, you know, I think never more important than it was than the four years of the Trump administration when she became the Democratic face of the opposition to the president, starting from that first meeting, the the time she was wearing that red coat, the first time as uh, after Democrats had won control of the House uh, that she and Chuck Schumer were sitting down with the president and vice president and her sharp retort to Trump when he suggested maybe she wasn't in such a powerful position was something that really fortified her troops behind her and was a signal of what was going to follow for the next couple of years. You end the biography with the lessons of power from Nancy Pelosi <laughs> saying in part, quote, wait to act until you have the votes to win and keep some extra in your pocket. Display a Gucci glove when possible, <laughs> wield an iron fist when necessary. Uh, do you see uh, an issue where, where the strategy is working to Pelosi's advantage in particular? Well, you know, she has the longest tenure as the leader of a party in the House of Representatives since Sam Rayburn. She has been responsible personally for the passage of some of the biggest pieces of legislation that we've had in this century, including the financial bailout in 2008 and the Affordable Care Act uh, in 2009. She uh if, if you want to look at whether the iron fist in the Gucci glove has worked for her, I think you just look at that and look at the current debate. She's gotten through the House that $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. We'll see if she'll be able to get this next big infrastructure bill through the House. I would say that people have generally lost money in betting against Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, that's certainly true. Whatever you think of her politics, she's been very 
Very consequential. Susan Page, her new book is excellent. It's called Madam Speaker. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Jake. Coming up next, President Biden set to unveil his next big plan. What's in the proposal and who's going to pay for it? That's next. In the politics lead, as President Biden approaches his first 100-day in office, Mark, the White House today is announcing his first presidential foreign trip. He's going to head to the U.K. in June, then on to Brussels. But first, Biden has a busy domestic agenda. Climate is dominating today. He's going to push for an infrastructure deal with Congress, of course. And then there is still COVID, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports. President Biden is set to unveil the next piece of his economic agenda during a speech next week to a joint session of Congress. It has two parts, the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. After outlining a sweeping infrastructure package in Pittsburgh late last month, the White House is putting the final touches on a so-called human infrastructure plan. Together, the proposals amount to a nearly $4 trillion investment in reshaping the American economy. Highlights of the new American Family Plan, officials tell CNN, include reducing childcare costs, increasing paid family leave, and making community college tuition free. To pay for the plan, the White House is considering nearly doubling capital gains tax for people making $1 million or more, taxing those gains the same as ordinary income. The proposal also calls for raising the top marginal tax rates for households making more than $400,000 a year to 39.6% from the existing rate of 37%. These proposed numbers, which are consistent with what he talked about on the campaign trail when he was running for president, what I can say is that it will only affect people making more than $1 million a year. As the president hits the 100-day-in-office mark next week, the administration's ambitious proposals are stacking up. Negotiations are set to intensify on Capitol Hill after Biden addresses lawmakers next Wednesday before hitting the road to sell his plans. On the second day of his virtual climate summit at the White House, the president making the economic argument for addressing the crisis. When we invest in climate resilience and infrastructure, we create opportunities for everyone. That, uh, that's uh, the heart of my jobs plan that I propose here in the United States. That jobs plan and the rest of his economic priorities present the first test for Biden's ability to navigate the slim Democratic majorities in Congress, as Republicans increasingly make clear they intend to stand against his agenda. And that speech to a joint session of Congress next Wednesday, Jake, will only be attended by fewer than half of all lawmakers. We're being told that about 200 invitations will be going out because of uh, restrictions, because of the pandemic. And First Lady Jill Biden will be on hand, but she will not be surrounded by guests like First Ladies normally are. Of course, that may come next year at his first official State of the Union. All right, let's hope so. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. This Sunday on State of the Union, join my scene and co-host Dana Bash for an exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris, plus West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin joins as well as the junior senator from West Virginia, Republican Shelley Moore Capita. That's at 9 a.m. and noon on Sunday. Coming up, a reexamination of policing in America. I'm going to talk to the prosecutor from the Freddie Gray case next. Also ahead, running out of time and running out of oxygen. The search for 53 people on a missing submarine. Stay with us. Internationally today, the impact of the George Floyd case continues to spark dialogue about policing reform. Here to discuss Baltimore City State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby. Uh, State's Attorney Mosby, thanks so much for joining us. So you, of course, were at the center of the case in 2015 when 25-year-old Freddie Gray 
uh, was killed uh, after he was arrested by police and transported in a van. It's still unclear how exactly or, or why exactly he died. You prosecuted six Baltimore police officers and you brought dozens of abuse charges and yet there were no convictions. So as somebody who has tried to fight the good fight here um, uh, and struggled, what, what do you make of the moment in which we find ourselves today? So I think it's a great question and thank you for having me. Uh, the reason this moment is so incredibly important, Jake, is because there is finally an acknowledgement and a recognition what it's been like to be Freddie Gray and Mike Brown and Ahmaud Arbery and Sandra Bland and Eric Garner and the black uniform lieutenant in the United States Army. What it's like to be black in America and to engage with the police. And so, you know, when we talk about the infliction of excessive force and the refusal to render aid and the complete and utter indifference to black lives, that for black people in this country is policing in America. And Keith Ellison did a phenomenal job, right? He had some video evidence that could not be contradicted. And in this moment, I feel cautiously optimistic. I think that this is the first step towards equality and accountability. That accountability is important because if you remember, the local prosecutor, Mike Freeman, didn't have the courage to apply that accountability. Accountability is what lead, led in Baltimore. You know, we didn't have cameras depicting the trial from start to finish. We didn't have direct evidence of the murder. And unlike the Chauvin trial, we had to rely on circumstantial evidence and police witnesses. Right. What we saw in the Chauvin trial is like this crumbling of the blue wall of silence. We actually had training officers that testified for the defense. We had the fraternal order of police that touted sabotaging the case. So do you think, I mean, I was going to ask you that because what was so remarkable in the Derek Chauvin trial was the fact that his own police chief and other police on his force testified against him. You don't see that very often. Do you think now there is a recognition by good cops, we need to stand up for what's right and testify against bad cops for our own sake? Absolutely. And I think that this is the first step towards that type of accountability. And if you look at like what happened in Baltimore, I know that the Department of Justice is coming out and they're going to start to do uh, a pattern and practice uh, an investigation into their their practices in the police department. But that accountability in the city of Baltimore led to exposure. A week after I charged those officers, the Department of Justice came in, exposed the discriminatory policing practices of the eighth largest police department in the country. That exposure ultimately led to reform. We now have a federally enforceable consent decree, right? And they exposed that pattern and practice of discriminatory enforcement. We can point to tangible reforms that were actually put into place as a direct result of that accountability. But there are also systemic reforms. There are also cultural reforms that have to take place if we don't want to see what has been taking place for black people in this country over and over and over again. Now, of course, most of your job as state's attorney is working with police uh, who bring criminals. I mean, generally speaking, who bring criminals uh, who are, you know, bad and blights on society. How is it working with police uh, in this era when most of your work depends upon their work and their being excellent, uh, even though you have gone after police when they have not acted that way? How, how is that dynamic work? What I can tell you is that we have prosecuted approximately 33 police officers since Freddie Gray and convicted them. 
Um, we have an overall in 2019, because of the pandemic, we couldn't really use a calculation, an overall 90% conviction rate. By no means do we measure our success by that. But as prosecutors, our only sort of barometer of success is justice. And so that's incredibly important because, as I stated, we can point to these tangible sort of reforms, um, the consent decree, the full implementation of body-worn cameras on all officers, the use of force policies, de-escalation policies that emphasize the sanctity of life, the affirmative duty to intervene if your fellow officers cross the line. We saw that in so many of these other cases, you know, the, the duty and the mandate to call a medic when a prisoner asks for it, the mandate for police to seatbelt prisoners. And I mean, and, and to have cameras, not having to rely on circumstantial evidence, but to have right. that image, right? right? That's something that has stuck out in the Chauvin trial that could not be contradicted. Seeing his life snuffed out for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Yeah, those cameras are very, very important. Marilyn Mosby, uh, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Appreciate your time today. No, thank you for having me. A dangerous new flaw has reportedly been exposed in Tesla's cars. We're going to show you what can go wrong. That's next. New in our health lead, California's two largest university school systems, the University of California Systems, and the California State University Systems just announced that every on-campus student, faculty member, and staff member needs to be vaccinated either by their return this fall or when at least one of the vaccines get, gets full, not emergency FDA approval, whichever comes later. CNN's Bianca Goladriga now reports that some schools are still hesitant to require the vaccine. They fear legal consequences. And I was happy. I was. I already wanted to get vaccinated. I have no problems with getting vaccinated. So. For these Rutgers University students, any chance at normalcy would be a real shot in the arm. Have more students come back, be in person, and like hopefully like get a real college experience. We feel vaccine is the, is the game changer for us to bring back as many people as we can. School officials like Antonio Calcado say mandating that all students be fully vaccinated for COVID-19 before returning to campus in the fall is the best and safest way to bring students back. They deserve to have the experience that they have been looking forward to. And we think that this is a small price to pay to, to, to do it. Rutgers was one of the first, but they're not alone. Nearly 75 other universities, including Duke, Georgetown, Brown, Cornell, Notre Dame, and Syracuse, are requiring that students get vaccinated. Students will be required to upload their vaccination cards. Calcado compares the policy to proof for other vaccines, such as measles and mumps, required in public and private schools across the country. We already require and mandate um, a number of different vaccines. So we have a policy in place. Similar to other vaccines, exemptions for medical or religious beliefs can be requested. Vaccine mandates in education go back a long time and traditionally have been upheld by court because they increase safety in uh, areas that's uh, vulnerable to outbreaks. Despite that history, other schools are taking a different approach. The University of Colorado at Boulder says it is not requiring vaccines at this time because they are being administered under the FDA's Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA, but is strongly encouraging students to get them. There's a legal question, can you mandate the vaccine under an EUA? And the law isn't clear on that. 
State policies may also impact a school's decision. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis issued an executive order banning businesses from asking to see proof of a COVID-19 vaccine one day after Nova Southeastern University announced it would require vaccinations. The school says it is now reviewing the order. Then there are schools like Ohio State, which are avoiding mandates altogether, instead saying everyone is encouraged to get vaccinated as soon as they are able to do so. The vaccine has been proven to be safe and effective. Many schools have yet to announce a vaccine policy, perhaps an indication of just how complicated the issue is, as students remain hopeful for a return to campus normalcy. It gives me hope that things will be more normal than they are now. So I'm just happy to get back and I'll be able to see all my friends again. Walking alone through a still deserted Rutgers campus, Calcado has no regrets over their decision. The fun component is literally pulled out of it. And your view is the key to get back to fun is through vaccine. It is. Now, one important area to watch, Jake, is how this impacts international students. Take Rutgers, for example. They have over 9,000 international students. For those that haven't been vaccinated, the school will provide vaccines, of course. But the real situation and and the question comes for those students who have been vaccinated with non-FDA approved vaccines. There's no science behind whether or not they can be double vaccinated. And the school will only accept FDA approved vaccines. You can imagine other universities and colleges are going to be facing similar issues as well. Yeah, there are plenty of countries, including ones close to us, where they don't have access to Pfizer or Moderna. Bianca Goldrier, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Right now, right this minute, a CDC panel is voting on the future of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the United States. We're going to bring the results to you of that vote once we have it. But now to our tech lead, a deadly crash in Texas is raising questions now about the safety of Tesla's autopilot feature. Police said that nobody was sitting in the driver's seat when the car crashed and killed both people inside, despite Tesla's assurance that autopilot only works with a driver behind the wheel. CNN's Pete Montine reports for us now with at least 28 open investigations into various Tesla incidents. Lawmakers are warning that Tesla safety concerns are becoming a troubling pattern. Autopilot is the futuristic Tesla feature that drivers love. Look at this! You're on autopilot! Tesla says the system is designed to reduce the workload of attentive drivers. But it is facing new scrutiny after this crash in a Texas neighborhood last week. Police say this 2019 Tesla Model S slammed into a tree with nobody in the driver's seat. Both men on board died. The Tesla Design Studio. Tesla CEO Elon Musk says car data logs recovered so far show autopilot was not enabled. Even still, the crash prompted two federal investigations and a demonstration by Consumer Reports. No one should operate their car like this on the road. On a closed course, test drivers say they were able to easily trick autopilot into operating without somebody behind the wheel. The driver sets the system speed to zero and climbs into the passenger seat while the driver's side seatbelt remains buckled. I was able to increase the set speed by turning the wheel on the steering wheel. And at this point, it was completely driving on autopilot with no one in the driver's seat. I was horrified when I saw what was possible. William Wallace had safety policy for Consumer Reports. Effectively, Consumer Reports tricked the system. And we only did it to demonstrate just how much more is needed from Tesla when it comes to safety. 
In a new letter, a pair of Senate Democrats are demanding a swift investigation by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. The agency has 24 open investigations into Tesla incidents. In the letter, Senator Richard Blumenthal says he's worried Tesla safety concerns are becoming a pattern. There needs to be immediate investigation and intervention by the federal agencies, but Tesla itself bears a moral and likely legal responsibility to do more and do better to protect its drivers. Tesla has not responded to our request for comment. Its instructions to drivers say they should be ready to take over at any time. Consumer Reports says other cars ensure that with eye tracking sensors, a feature Consumer Reports says is critically absent on Tesla's. Jake? All right, Pete, thanks so much. This is CNN Breaking News. And we have that breaking news in our Health Aid. A CDC panel has just voted, and the panel is officially recommending that the U.S. should resume using the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccines, a vaccine in Americans 18 years and older. Let's go straight to CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So, Sanjay, what happens next? Well, the, the, um, they're still giving some, some final remarks here about whether or not this will be uh, including some sort of caution uh, there were 10 people who voted for this, for lifting the pause, four people who, who voted against, and one person who abstained, I guess, because they had a conflict, they were involved with the clinical trial. So we, we still want to get a few more details, but I think clearly this, as you, as you mentioned, the pause will be lifted. Uh, this is an advisory committee, so now the, you know, the FDA has to, to uh, actually make this official, which they typically do. The CDC will then get involved, but basically they're saying for people over the age of 18, the Janssen, the, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine uh, can resume. Um, and that's under the emergency use authorization. So that's what we know so far. I'm, I'm curious. We're still going to wait to see if there's specific cautions that they're giving here or not. Uh, it sounds like they're not going to make restrictions based on age, though, because they're saying 18 and over. It's OK to, to go ahead and use this vaccine. OK, and Sanjay, I'm told that uh, they're going to update the warning label for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that that. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, there's, there is going to be a change in the way it's administered, in, at least in that way. Right. And, and, and that's sort of what we expected. We saw that in, in Europe. I guess you're hearing that now. I think they're still discussing this. But typically, the, the sort of warning is, you know, this can be associated with both low platelets. Platelets are something that help clot the blood and uh, associated with this, this problem with clotting. Uh, we heard about these clots that can develop in the blood vessels in the brain but also uh, a risk of clots in other parts of the body as well. They want patients to know about that if they have some history of this problem to certainly let their, their doctor know ahead of time. But also for clinicians, I mean, this is an unusual problem, uh, a very rare problem, and needs to be treated a very specific way. So in Europe, for example, they recommended that a specialist known as a hematologist be involved if this problem arises because it can be treated if it's diagnosed early and properly. Um, so we'll, we'll see if that specific language, I don't know if you've already heard that language, Jake, I'm still trying to listen in as well, but my guess is it'll sort of mirror language sort of like that. It, it's, it's a rare occurrence. I mean, part of the reason they waited another week, I think, Jake, was to see if there were more and more cases that sort of declared, you know, people said I had the same problem and there were a few more, but when you added it all, all up, it's still very rare. All right, Sanjay, thanks so much. Uh, we'll be right back. Of course, as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Some news starting Monday, The Lead expands to two hours, two hours every day. Join me every weekday live from D.C., 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. 
I'm Jake Tapper. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Have a fantastic weekend. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.